0: heavenly father as we come now to the preaching of your holy word we pray open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths enlighten now the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which you have called us the riches of your glorious grace in the gospel we pray in the name of your son jesus christ amen Please open your Bibles to our sermon text Romans chapter 11 verses 25 through 36. Romans 11:25 through 36. Here now this is the holy infallible word of God. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he, might ha- that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This morning we continue our series working through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we come now to the conclusion of this major section of the letter, chapters 9 to 11, where Paul has been dealing with the problem that has been weighing so heavy on his heart. Why? Why? Have so many of the Jews, his fellow kinsmen, rejected the good news of their long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ? does this mean that the word of God has failed? Does this mean that they have fallen, never to rise again? Does this mean that they are no longer God's chosen and beloved people? Does this mean that there is no more hope for them? Paul's definitive answer to all these questions is the strongest possible negation, by no means, absolutely not. There is still a remnant. There is still hope. God still has a plan, for God is always faithful. And Paul, even though he has been called primarily as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, he has a mission strategy to reach the Jews as well. The last time we saw how Paul used the imagery of an olive tree to depict how God's people, Old Testament and New, are one holy people, with the Gentiles being grafted into that tree. And sadly, those unbelieving Jews who reject the Messiah are branches who are cut off. And yet the hope remains that if they repent, if they re- embrace Christ, they will be grafted in again. Paul's exhortation to us last time was a warning against pride and boasting. And we'll see that continues in this passage this morning. He opens with a similar warning in verse 25. And even the closing doxology, a hymn of praise to God is itself deeply humbling to us. This passage is perhaps best known for verses 25 and 26, which are considered some of the most difficult, some of the most debated verses in this whole letter. If you've been following along in this sermon series so far, you remember that's not the first time I've made this claim, as I said the same thing about the second half of chapter 7. It's just as true of this passage this morning particularly of the words which I've chosen as our sermon title this morning all Israel will be saved Now to be honest with you I've wrestled long and hard concerning the meaning of these words going back several years It was a difficult sermon to prepare and I've really only come to a strong conviction of my view as I've studied these things in greater depth in preparation for this sermon. And as this is a debated passage with pastors holding different views, even within our own denomination, I've chosen to present both views on these uh, on uh, this passage this morning. Uh, I've, at the same time, I will present the reasons why I believe my uh, preferred interpretation is more faithful not only to the text here, but... The wider teaching of Scripture. Now, of course, we want to get our doctrine right. The purpose is not just to have the right doctrine, the purpose is to know God, to understand His purposes, and as we see where we're headed this morning, to give Him all the glory. So, our sermon will be in three parts this morning. First, the mystery revealed second, God's purposes, and third, doxology. True knowledge of God always leads to doxology, to the praise of God. So first, the mystery reveal: all Israel will be saved. Paul begins in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Paul's picking up right from where he left off last time. He was speaking to the Of the Jews, the natural branches being grafted back into their own olive tree. And how easy, how natural it is. All that is needed for them is to repent, to receive their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now Paul wants to transition to tell the Gentiles, that's his primary audience throughout this section, to tell the Gentiles that he has great assurance that many Jews will in fact turn and embrace Christ. And he calls this assurance, this knowledge that he has, a mystery. Here Paul uses this term mystery in the biblical sense of the word. Now biblical mystery is something that was previously unknown, previously veiled, but now the veil has been pulled back. Now it has been revealed. This biblical use of the word mystery actually goes back to the book of Daniel chapter 2, which we just covered in our evening series. There in Daniel 2, the word mystery is used eight times, and the Lord is even given the title, the revealer of mysteries, as he reveals the future to Nebuchadnezzar. And now Paul is making this mystery known to his readers, and to us as well. His purpose in revealing this mystery is so that you will not be wise in your own sight. He still has in mind that warning from the previous section that you, the Gentiles, not boast. Though they have received God's grace in the gospel and others have been hardened, that is no ground for boasting. Your wisdom is not your own, but it is a gift from God, the revealer of mysteries. As we read on, we see it is a mystery in three parts. First, a partial hardening has come on Come upon Israel. Second, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And third, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, the key interpretational question, the thing that is debated is this. Who is all Israel in verse 26? Now, there are as many as five views. There's probably even more out there. Let me state briefly one view that's not really held anymore, and then we'll spend most of our time looking at the two main views held today. The view no longer held is the view of Augustine and of Calvin, that all Israel reviews, refers to all the elect Jews and Gentiles. Now it's true that Paul refers to the church, including both Jews and believing Gentiles, as the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. The problem with this view is that all throughout Romans 9 to 11, Paul has been using the term Israel to refer to ethnic Israel in contrast to the Gentiles. In fact, he uses it in this way in the very preceding verse. And so to say it suddenly changes to mean both Jews and Gentiles in verse 26 goes against the grain of the whole passage. And so nearly all agree today that this view is, is not viable. So second, let's consider the popular evangelical view. And I must say, this is the view of the majority of scholars. It's the view defended by almost all the commentaries I own. It's the view of Hodge, of Murray, of Voss, of many others. And this view holds that Paul is teaching here that all Israel refers to the mass conversion of ethnic uh, Israelites of a future generation right before the return of Jesus Christ. And to help you understand this interpretation, it's helpful to, refer, uh, to read a preferred translation, which I provided in your outline. So here's the translation. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. Let's begin with their understanding of the partial hardening. And this is is hardening of Israel's partial in two ways. It's partial from the very beginning in that there is always a remnant of believing Jews. But it's also partial because it will come to an end at some point in the future. And when will that be? Paul tells us it is until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The Gentiles are coming in throughout the church age. Until the last elect Gentile, the full numbers reach, the last elect Gentile has come to Christ, and then the third phase comes into effect, and then all Israel will be saved. Now the hardening is lifted, and this is now understood as a mass conversion of the last generation of ethnic Israel shortly before Christ's second coming. It's also worth pointing out that almost all interpreters agree that all Israel does not necessarily mean every single individual Israelite. But the nation, the great majority of Israelites, those living at the time, will come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are slight variations on this interpretation depending on the interpreter, especially depending on whether they are dispensational, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, I think you get the broad outline here. Now, what is attractive about this view? Besides the fact that, of course, they believe it is faithful to the scriptures. There's naturally an excitement looking forward to this mass conversion of the Jews. And now, before we turn to the second view, I want to note that there are two main arguments against this interpretation. I won't list them here because the two arguments against are also arguments for the second view. So I'll present them in a moment here. That brings us to the second view, the Reformed view. And it really may not be the best title because many Reformed uh, theologians hold to the mass conversion view. But as far as I can find, only Reformed scholars hold to this second view. Now, this view sees this uh, statement as a summary and capstone of Paul's mission strategy for reaching the Jews throughout all history, not exclusively future. This is certainly a minority view, although it does have some esteemed proponents such as Bavink, Ritterboss, and Gaffin. Let me again read a preferred translation for those supporting this view. A partial hardening has come upon Israel while the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, the first difference you'll notice is the change from until to while. Now, the Greek preposition here is ambiguous. It can be translated either way. But of course, the difference is significant for it changes the three phrases from being sequential one after another to being concurrent all at the same time. You also notice in the beginning of verse 26, is no longer then, but in this way. And in fact, most supporters of the mass conversion view recognize that this is really the only viable translation, and they have actually updated their arguments accordingly. It's also the translation followed by the ESV. But how does this, the change from until to while, from sequential to concurrent impact the meaning of what Paul is saying. If you were to simply read Paul's words without knowing about the mass conversion view, what would be the first question you would ask when reading these words? I know my very first question would be, in this way? In what way? In verse 25, Paul speaks of Israel's partial hardening and then of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in? He doesn't say anything about how Israel will be saved. How does that lead to the in this way of verse 26? In what way? But of course, Paul has explained the way that the Jews are being saved earlier in chapter 11. He has spoken of how the gospel is going out to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous, in order that they might be saved. This is the way that the salvation of the Gentiles will lead to the salvation of all Israel. Paul has already explained this to us. Now let's consider the question of when. When will this happen? On the mass conversion view, the salvation of the Jews is put off to the distant future. Now Paul might not have known just how distant it was when he was writing this, but it was future for him. Now, there's a problem, because this does not line up with what Paul says later in the passage in verses 30 and 31. He writes, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And the key word to notice in the final phrase in verse 31 is now. They too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now, now receive mercy. Here we see Paul describing this wave motion that he has described earlier. By Israel's rejection of Christ, the gospel went out to the Gentiles, and now it is bouncing back and returning to the Jews. This mercy is already available for Israel now. It is not awaiting the final generation before Christ returns. And Paul sees verses 25 and 26 already being fulfilled in his own ministry. This argument from verse 31, that this is already happening now, is the first argument for this view and against the mass conversion view. The second argument is a broader one, not just from this passage, but from the whole New Testament. I brought this up in my previous sermon from Romans. And it's that Christ has told us to be ready for his return at any moment. He will come like a thief in the night, and so you must be ready. So I'm skeptical of any teaching based on just two verses. It basically says Christ can't return until the mass conversion happens. And all the proponents of this mass conversion view agree, it hasn't happened yet. Now I know those who hold that view would never actually say in so many words, don't worry, don't be prepared. Christ can't return yet because the mass conversion hasn't happened yet. They would never say that. And yet it seems to me that It's an unavoidable implication of their view. How do you get around it? I haven't heard an answer to that. So to sum it up, the Reformed view holds that all Israel refers to all the elect Israelites who will be saved through the preaching of the gospel throughout the entire church age. So what is the attraction of the view, this view, besides the fact that believe it's faithful to the scriptures even more so than the alternative here I think it's worth highlighting this view does not preclude it does not eliminate the possibility that revival even mass conversion is possible not only near the end but at any point in history if the Lord so wills in fact I'd say just as Paul prayed fervently for the salvation of his fellow Jews in his day so we should pray for a revival among the Jews and among all people today certainly the lord is sovereign over salvation as we saw in chapter 9 but i believe on the basis of these verses that there is no reason that a great revival a mass conversion could not happen long before the final days leading up to christ's return it's all in the lord's hands At the same time, we may be in those final days. We do not know. And we also pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Christ has taught us, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 44. In fact, that's exactly where Paul goes in the scripture quotations that follow. Verse 26b, as it is written the deliverer will come from zion he will banish ungodliness from jacob and this will be my covenant with them when i take away their sins here paul is following his pattern of supporting his arguments from scripture again from the prophet isaiah he quotes first from isaiah 59 which we read earlier 20 and 21 followed by a clause from isaiah 279 It also reminds us of the well-known passage describing the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Here I believe Paul is speaking of Christ's second coming, descending from heavenly Zion, when he will once and for all banish ungodliness from his people, Jacob, and take away their sins. This quotation serves as a capstone on this paragraph. After speaking of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and the salvation of all Israel, Paul's mind goes to what follows, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? If not, get ready. Paul reveals this mystery in this way. All Israel will be saved. Next, he speaks of God's purposes from a big picture perspective verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Here, Paul contrasts the dual status of the Jews. Insofar as they reject the gospel, they are enemies. First, enemies of God. A second, they are also enemies of the church in that they persecute believers. And Paul himself bears the marks of this persecution on his body. However, as Paul will remind us in the next chapter, we are called to love our enemies, to pray for them. And any Jew may repent. He may be grafted back in. And many, in fact, will. And then secondly, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They are still beloved of God. They are still his chosen people. And he has a plan For their restoration. We too are called to love the Jews. Even as we recognize that we are grafted into their tree. We receive the nourishing sap from the root of the patriarchs. We received their promises, their blessings, their inheritance. Yes, certainly this is all in and through Jesus Christ. And we never forget that Christ was born a Jew. And so Paul writes, verse 29... For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul had started this whole section back in Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He circles back around to this with a strong assertion at the very end of the section. God will not go back on his promises to the Jewish people. He will fulfill his word. He is faithful. Now, we already looked at verses 30 and 31 above, which describe this wave motion, gospel going first to the Jews, being embraced by a small remnant, but rejected by a majority. And it was in Israel's trespass, their rejection of the Messiah, that catapulted the gospel out across the ancient world so that it re- arrived even as far as Rome. But now the gospel is bouncing back by the mercy of Uh, being shown to the Gentiles, so the Jews also now receive God's mercy. And Paul described this as a mission strategy based on good jealousy. It is a good thing to look on another person rejoicing in their Savior, rejoicing in their salvation, and to covet this, to want to know that same joy, that same salvation for yourself. And then Paul sums up this whole way that God has so wondrously worked for our salvation. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You read that by itself and it sounds very strange. It is a wondrous thing. The word translated here, consigned, has the original sense in the Greek of to close up together. It actually reminds us of Paul's speaking of God's handing over rebellious sinners to their ever-increasing sin in chapter 1. What we saw in chapter 1 of, as a, a downward spiral into sin is interrupted and reversed here by God's mercy. Instead of closing us up in our sins, he has had mercy on us in Jesus Christ a warning here, this verse should never be wrenched out of context in order to teach some sort of universalism. You can see how a person could do that if they just had this one verse and not the rest of the letter. And Paul is not saying here that all, every individual will be saved. Rather, all here refers to all nations, Jew and Gentile. He's teaching about the impartiality of God, in the end, the fullness of the Gentiles will be saved and also all Israel will be saved. And Paul's point is whether you are, Jew, you are a Jew or Gentile, you can't consider yourself and your people at the center of God's redemptive plan for mankind for he has a plan to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And all this wells up to the glory of God. And that's exactly where Paul is going next, to doxology, to the glory of God alone. Uh, This doxology that concludes chapter 11 is one of the two great doxologies here in Paul's letter to the Romans. The other comes at the conclusion of the book, chapter 16. Some have speculated that after The difficulties of wrestling with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility in these last few chapters. Paul throws up his hands in frustration and just rests knowing that these things are in God's hands. It's true that everything is in God's hands, but that is misreading this passage completely. Paul is not frustrated at all, he is deeply moved that God has revealed his plans and purposes to us, even as he realizes that both God himself and his purposes are far beyond our ability to comprehend. (laughs) And so he revels in God and he gives God the praise and the glory due to him in response to the great mysteries he has revealed. After 11 chapters of laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul now cannot help but overflow with praise to God. The image you should have is that of Paul having climbed this mountain of theology. He's now standing on the peak of that mountain looking out and he just cannot take it all in. His heart is overwhelmed and praise pours out of him. The poetic qualities are clear as the doxology is comprised of three stanzas, each made up of three elements. And I want to do a brief analysis of this hymn this morning, but it's, it's my opinion that overanalyzing poetry, picking it to pieces can miss the forest for the trees, so I won't overdo it here this morning. The first stanza is verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We have three exclamations describing God. The first word, oh, makes clear this is an exclamation from the heart. Paul exclaims concerning the depth of three of God's attributes, his riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge. Paul here is likely reflecting here on the riches of grace and mercy toward us, his wisdom shown in our salvation, his personal knowledge of us. The next two lines are close parallels. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. His judgments can refer either to God's decisions, the grand decisions he has made, and how he governs all of history, or can refer to his judicial acts in judging mankind. And his ways refer to his providential dealings dealings with mankind. And Paul describes both of these as unsearchable and inscrutable beyond human comprehension. And he builds on these three exclamations in the second stanza, verses 34 and 35, with three rhetorical questions. In fact, if you look closely, you'll find that these three rhetorical questions parallel the three exclamations from the previous verse in reverse order. First, we have, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Well, here's quoting Isaiah 40, 13. Can you even understand his thoughts, which are higher than your thoughts? much less give him counsel or advice which would somehow improve his plans? How absurd. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This is not a direct quotation, but it's based on Job 41.11. There in the book of Job, God is challenging Job with a series of unanswerable questions. And so there are the questions in the first person. Who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, here Paul modifies it, he puts it in the third person. But of course, the implied answer to all three rhetorical questions is simple no one, no one is equal to any of these tasks. And these questions are deeply humbling to us, they put us in our place. Not only can we not comprehend God with our minds, but we have nothing to give to him, all we can do is receive from the abundance of his riches. We receive salvation through faith in Christ and we receive from him everything else that we have. Final stanza is verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is the source the sustainer, and the goal of all things. He's the creator of all things, speaking them to existence by the word of his power. He upholds all things also by the word of his power, and all things exist for him and unto him, for he is the beginning and the end, and all that he does, he does for his glory. To him be glory forever. This doxology not only humbles us and puts us in our place, but it stirs our hearts to praise. And for Paul, it flows out of his meditation on God's work of redemption. It flows out of the deep theology that he has been teaching in the preceding chapters of Romans. (sighs) Never think that you can separate theology from doxology. For true theology, that is, True knowledge of God must lead you to worship and glorify God. For how can you come to know, to truly know, so glorious a God and not fall down on your face and give him all the praise and the honor and the glory? And then what comes next? After doxology, must comes, I know it's a big word, but orthopraxy. Right practice, right living And that's exactly where we're headed next week. And of course, this is not a vicious spiral going downwards, but the opposite, a virtuous spiral, a spiral headed upwards toward greater knowledge of the Lord and more beautiful worship and a greater holiness of life. And so I ask, is that the road you're on? Is that the road we're on as a church certainly my prayer for each of you as individuals and my prayer for us together as a church. Will you pray that prayer with me for yourself and for us as a church? That we would be on that road, that virtuous spiral, better knowing the Lord, better worshiping him, giving him all the glory, and in response, living lives That would also honor and glorify him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We are in awe. As we get just a small glimpse. Of your plans. We are in awe. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would have mercy on miserable sinners such as us. That you would have mercy on Gentiles who lived so long in darkness. That you would have mercy on Jews who had the light for so long and yet were so stubborn and so often rebelled against you. And yet you always remain faithful and you overflow in mercy and forgiveness and grace. And how can we respond but in praise saying, oh the depth, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been your counselor, who has given a gift to you that he might be repaid. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you, O oh Lord, be glory forever and ever. Amen.